you've done so much as I can see over the years. You've gone through like a number of different kind of career changes as well. Maybe can yeah. you summarize that for us in about, you know, two minutes? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the way I would describe myself as a startup mentor, um, you know, I help business to business tech founders who struggle with selling or uncomfortable with selling to figure out a path to, to predictable recurring revenues by teaching them kind of how to focus and structure and, and scale their their various sales and marketing operations. And what makes, I think, my approach a bit unusual, and this is in reference to, to my professional background, is I have kind of two very different uh, experiences or sets of experiences or mindsets that I can combine. So I've done 20 years in the corporate world. Um, I was kind of in big uh, global world roles in the in the media industry. So I was senior vice president of global sales at NBC Universal uh, International, um, overseeing a multiple hundred million dollar business. Um, I've closed about two billion dollars worth of B two B deals over the course of my uh, career. So it's got that one side, but I've actually actually also launched my own business. I've sold a tech company. I've been an investor uh, and in multiple exits, uh, and and so I kind of understand the. The difficulties of creating something from nothing and so kind of combining those two world mindsets i think makes my approach uh, somewhat unique zoltan a question i had was like so you're you're working sort of like you know big enterprise sales at that stage in your career was there a point where you thought hey you know what i kind of want to go to the early end of the business spectrum and give back and help early stage founders what was it that made you feel like that because obviously it's a big change right yeah it is although i i you know if you look at my career path i've had various stages where i've kind of gone off track, uh, left behind the corporate world to to launch my own business. I, I was part of that first big dot-com uh, boom back in the late 90s. I uh, I teamed up with a, a co-founder and we launched a, a portal, web portal network in Central and Eastern Europe, which we were able to sell. Um, and I've had some various stages where I've kind of left the corporate world to do some angel investing. Um, you know, this last time for me, it was really not just a uh, a sidetrack. It was a fundamental decision I made about changing the 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 trajectory of my professional career. Um, you know, I, I sort of spent, you know, kind of that last four or five years in this sort of very big corporate environment, you know, it's getting sucked up in the matrix, so to speak. And I just decided I had enough, you know, I kind of move on. So, uh, you know, I, I uh, decided that I wanted to get back into helping some, you know, entrepreneurs bring their dreams to life. And so, you know, one of the interesting things I, I found was that these founders I started working with um, were extremely knowledgeable, you know, technically very passionate about the products, right? They like were really into what they were doing, but they just didn't have the slightest clue about how to sell and market their product. You know, they just, they struggled with explaining effectively why somebody should buy what they're selling. You know, they didn't have a sales process in place. They didn't set targets. They didn't track their performance. Like all the stuff you kind of learn in, you know, 20 years of just doing this day to day, they didn't have. And so, it didn't take me long to realize that they really needed to have some sort of blueprint or structure to follow because they they didn't have anything they didn't have a path right and you know the default situation in the case of these companies is really one or two things right one is the i know a guy approach right i know somebody here and there and you know we'll do business with them or you know i know you know my uncle did business with this company i'm sure we can get a meeting and do business right so it's extremely personal and on the other spectrum is this spray and pray approach, right? Where they send out a thousand emails and pray that somebody's going to answer. And, you know, the problem is not either of those is really scalable, right? And so what I actually did is I started piecing together all these bits and pieces of, of everything I had learned, all the principles, the tools, the techniques, and I packaged it into the system, um, this three-pillar system that I call the launch code. And that's kind of what I share through personal mentoring programs, through group workshops, through on online on-demand course with these founders now, I guess, numbering over 200 from 25 countries. Nice. That's, that's formidable. Fantastic stuff. I'm always getting the vibe that it's like you feed off that mentality as well. You like that mentality of the, you know, the, the entrepreneurial zeal that the younger people are bringing. So it's like you give them skills and experience and you're almost, you know, get, getting that, that energy and spirit in return. A absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, one of the things you, you have when you're in kind of a very structured corporate environment is that you're put into a box, right? And, and everybody's got their little box and you're basically paid to do a, a very good job within that little box. So there's not a lot of, of encouragement of innovation, despite what a lot of companies talk about um, externally. And so you, know, you, you are surrounded by extremely well-qualified, smart people who basically aren't allowed to do very much. And you, know, you get into this environment where you know, the sky is the limit, um, literally, you know, I mean, the whole, the whole notion of creating something from nothing is, is infinite. 
And, and, uh, you know, I found myself speaking to people in, you know, I'm just thinking of my clientele. I mean, I've got a German act tech company I work with. I've got a UK based uh, AI robotics company I work with. I, I work with uh, B2B SaaS companies across Central Eastern Europe. So it's like, it's just such a mix of, of people. And what, what is a common thread is they all have, have created this idea of solving a problem in some new unique way and i think that's a really exciting thing to be to be around and it's also an exciting thing to help bring to life yeah it's like a fundamental tenet of entrepreneurship businesses as a whole right it's something that i think a lot of early stage entrepreneurs learn that hey the market has no emotion but it does have problems if you can solve the problems then you, you got something here well just because you really want to be an entrepreneur you know that's, that's not a good enough reason Absolutely. And and I talk about that so much. You know, the problem solution connection sits at the heart of of building a business. If there's no problem, then there's there's nothing for you to solve. And, and until you find that connection, you don't really achieve product market fit. And and I think, you know, what one of the interesting insights I've gotten is that sometimes articulating the problem and the solution in a way that your target customer can understand is perhaps one of the biggest first hurdles you have to get over. Right. I mean, so often I, you know, I have this experience all the time. I go to events all the time. I speak at events. I'm, you know, a panelist or, you know, in some capacity, people come up to me afterwards. And just recently there was a guy, um, you know, comes up to me and says, Hey, you know, I'm building a business. And, and then he's string of, you know, all the buzzwords, AI, hyper automation, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, we're going to take down Facebook and Google because they really are, are shit, aren't they? You know, so, and it's just like you sit there and say, okay, well, first of all, I don't really understand what you do. And second of all, uh, if your objective is to take down Facebook and Google, I think it's a great aspiration, but that's not, should, that not, that's not why you should be building a company, right? So just being able to articulate in one simple sentence, you know, my, my, my uh, litmus test is, can you explain to an intelligent 12-year-old what problem you solve for who and why you're better than the competition? If you can do that in one sentence, I think you're already you know, halfway there. Yeah. What, what I find okay. interesting, Zoltan, is that you know, you speak to a lot of people, especially kind of American entrepreneurs, and there's almost this culture of like, you know, head in the sky thinking like, you can't dream big enough. You know, I'm going to go for the biggest idea, the biggest market out there. And what I've learned as well, speaking to people like yourself who used to work in corporations is that you bring a lot of that kind of level-headedness and that kind of structure that's required to build a company. You know, it's not all, you know, just kind of sunshine, rainbows, dancing around, you know, having fun, you know, company swag, free meals and all of this. It's actually about creating structure, creating a plan, creating a business model. That's something I personally learned in the last year or so. Um, would you echo that in terms of kind of a lot of entrepreneurs not quite getting that? And that's really where your value add is? So two points there. Uh, the one uh, that I think is, is really important is this concept of structure, right? So structure is an interesting thing, right? If you're, if you perceive structure as being limiting, then it can be something that, that keeps you uh, demotivated or, 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 or unwilling to take a significant, uh, you know, strides in the right direction. I actually think that structure creates freedom, right? Because if you can create a system that you then can follow in a reasonably, uh, structured manner or approach, it actually frees you up to not worry about the day-to-day -day kind of bits and pieces, but to be much more creative. And so that's actually what I do with the launch code, right? So that the first pillar is, is focus your offer message, right? So it's, you know, what's your value proposition? What's your product offering? And what's your messaging? You know, these are the three things you just have to get down to be able to create a focused offer message. Then we move into how do you create a structured sales model, right? So outbound sales, inbound marketing, and partnerships. How do you create those pieces, those pillars, so that you, you, you just have a repetitive process that you implement? And then finally, the third piece, which actually is sometimes the most difficult for entrepreneurs um, to understand, is moving away from the concept of intuitive thinking to much more database decision-making, right? When you're like tracking your response your, your, your results, you're managing your performance, you're building a team to bring that to life. So that structure is something that I think um, adds a tremendous amount of value uh, to early stage businesses. Um, to your point about the US uh, kind of sky, the uh, the clouds thing, I have an interesting story. So one of the clients I worked with is a Finnish um, woman uh, and, and her team, and uh, they were kind of putting together technology to create um, highlight reels from sports in, in a very quick manner, in a few minutes using AI. And she joined a uh, US, I think it was an Austin-based accelerator um, virtually. And I don't know if you've ever met anybody from Finland, but they're like, they're not the biggest, you know, most outgoing people in the world. I mean, there's a reason why the, why text messaging was invented in Finland, right? That's That's how people communicate, right? And so here's this extremely reserved um, somewhat, you know, uh, soft-spoken woman 
who spent, you know, a couple of weeks in this accelerator. And I, you know, I had this program with her and I was going through it and I, and, and, you know, I come back uh, to, to have one of our sessions and she's like, well, you know, I've just been thinking, you know, we need to create a billion dollar company because if we don't create a billion dollar company, there's no point in doing this. And, and it was just so funny to see how her mindset had been completely shifted in two weeks of just being surrounded by people in the States who just say, look, if you don't, if you're not willing to create a billion dollar company, don't even bother. You know, it's not even worth it. I've even, I've and, even heard like the hundred billion now. I'd like the address well, even could take be, a call with you if you not even go over the hundred billion. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous, which, right? Which, which on the one hand, I I completely get. Look, I grew up in the states, as you can tell from my accent. So I was born and raised there. So I was I was imbued with this concept of you can be anything you put your mind to. But I think there is a big um, challenge uh, adapting that mindset to Europe, where where I think first of all people are somewhat more reserved, but also it does create this insane standard to meet, right? Uh, you know, there are a lot of successful entrepreneurs who have not built billion dollar companies, you know, and success measured in, you know, financial outcomes and an impact on society and, you know, users and stuff. So it's not like the world is gonna end if you don't build a billion dollar company. I think it's much more about creating a realistic outcome that's within the means of your capabilities, of your resources and, and shooting for that um, yeah, of course, creating some stretch goals because I mean, that's that's important. But you know, don't don't kill yourself if you don't think you can build a billion dollar company. I think it's the democratization of tech and all the social media and everything's out there, right? And it's if I'm not aiming for the top, what am I even doing out here? If there are people getting multi billion dollar exits, why am I going for the tens or hundreds of millions kind of thing? Um, yeah, I a hundred percent, I I really do understand the practicality argument. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, this whole concept of unicorn, right? So a billion dollar company. Um, I don't know the exact statistics, but I remember somebody speaking at a conference a year ago saying, you know, there were 34 uh, unicorns minted in Europe last year, but not a single one um, was minted after exit. It was basically somebody put enough money where it was valued at a billion. So, you know, there's a huge gap between being valued at a billion and, you know, actually generating a billion dollars worth of equity value. Um, and I can tell you, given what's happened in the last year in the market, you know, those valuations, I'm sure, have gone down significantly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I remember speaking to a couple of colleagues a few years back about why there was such a difference in mentality between, you know, the U.S. founder, the typical U.S. founder, stereotypical, typical British, European founder. And, you know, I thought, I thought it came down to a cultural thing. But he was like, you know, there's also some economic factors involved as well right it's like when you're based in the states you got you do have a much bigger market at your disposal so yeah. investors do have more money to throw because there's there's more potential gain at the end of the day so their incentivize is that you know this works they could outcompete the the whole market and this this could be very big and another point that we've come across quite a lot is that a lot of the money in places like london and you know big cities in europe it's all old money it's in a lot, it's in property. It's people that have, for example, you have this scheme in London called the EIS, EIS, Entrepreneurial Investment Scheme, right? So it's to incentivize people to take their money out of property or out of these, these old forms of capital and put it into new startups and incentivize that through some tax benefits. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I, 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 think, I think it's, it's so true. You know, there's such a fundamental difference when you've got a market of 350 million people who speak the same language, uh, you know, paying the same currency. Yeah, I think you'd be hard pressed to, to say that somebody from Texas and somebody from Boston are the same people. I mean, there are different cultural differences as well, but there still is enough commonality where you can actually create a single product. Uh, in a single language, speaking to roughly the same single uh, type of customer, and and create a multi billion dollar company in the states. As we know, in Europe, a country, you know, a continent of seven hundred fifty million people, and you know, speaking twenty five uh, different languages, um, with very significant cultural differences, different legal frameworks, different environments. Um, you know, it's just not as easy to do that. And and I think, um, you know, that's why. As you rightly say, you know, the expectations for U.S. companies is often that, you know, it's going to be, you know, a much bigger play. And there's also so much bigger appetite for risk, right? I mean, you've got a whole ecosystem of people who have exited with significant amounts of money. They've gone through the process. You know, there's a certain amount of, you know, um, soft pressure, I would say, you know, cultural pressure to put some of that money that you made back into the system, right? So you're inve yeah. investing as an angel investor in these in these companies. So the whole ecosystem is built um, to, to foster, um, you know, bigger plays. And so you don't have as much of a challenge in the US to to find money on the back of an idea, 
you know, very, very steep stage. Whereas in Europe, you're right, you're fighting with people, you're not fighting, you're, you're, you're trying to convince people who've got, you know, money in central London real estate, and which is, you know, delivered a nice return for literally hundreds of years. So yeah. <laughs> why yeah, risk it if it's, uh, if it's good? So yeah, so there's, there's some cultural difference. There's some, some practical, you know, uh, market condition differences. There's, there's a financial attitude difference as well. Mm-hmm. But Sultan, to go for back, from the, the macro review sort of back down to the micro stuff we were discussing earlier when we were talking about yeah. problems. You know, I've heard this framework of, you know, no knowns in terms of problems. So if you're selling to a client and they've got a problem that they know about, and then they've got a problem again, then they've got a known unknown or a, or an unknown unknown, which types of these problems are the easiest sales for a B2B founder? Well, I'd say that the, the problems that are going to be the easiest to to sell are the ones that hit the bottom line. Right. So what I mean by that is anything that generates additional revenue or saves costs, that's what's going to be easiest for a business to business customer to justify, you know, to to, to purchase um, anything that goes out of that, which is, you know, increases efficiency, boosts, you know, engagement, things like that. All very important stuff, but that's classically the nice to have category, right? That's the kind of stuff that's going to be, you know, probably pushed to the wayside when the economic environment isn't so rosy and people are a little more conservative in the way they're planning. So I always talk and encourage uh, my my companies I work with to to focus in on on bottom line impact, return on investment, and and to really position their service as a way to to make the company's profitability grow. Um, it's not always easy and it's not always obvious, but but I think if you focus on that, you'll you'll find that um, that there's a much bigger interest in in getting through to to decision makers. Having said that, there's of course very, very big differences between selling to a big corporation, let's say, or to a you know SME for instance. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you say that because I think increasing increasing efficiency, you know, reducing churn, all these like secondary metrics, ultimately they relate back to some form of cost saving or revenue generating, right? They do, but they're much more difficult to prove. Right. You know, okay. they, they, it's, it's about they, getting to the root, connection. Right? It's about getting right yeah, to exactly. what's going on. Yeah. It, exactly. It's yeah, look, let's be honest. Sorry, go on. Yeah, let's be honest. At the end of the day, look, financial managers and, and owners are, are motivated at the end of the day to generate a profit, right? That's the purpose of business. And so if anything you can do to help them do that is going to make them uh, sit, uh, you know, sit up and listen. And then how, obviously you work a lot in kind of B2B and SaaS, I'm presuming. Um, I'm sure you've seen kind of a wave of AI startups start coming through it and, you know, all the buzz about AI and everyone wanted to make some kind of, you know, layer on top of ChatGPT. Um, what have you kind of seen in those trends? And do you think what you've just said applies to it in terms of, you know, AI to kind of save the bottom line, help grow the top line? Because, you know, there are certainly strong cases for AI improving productivity. And therefore, you can, if you're, you know, if you're a content creator, you can get more content out, you can create more revenue, more partnerships, etc. Are there any kind of views you have on there or perhaps interesting industry takes and where AI can um, actually really help directly grow the top line or save the bottom line? Yeah. So obviously, it seems like everybody came back from their uh, their winter holidays on January and and to find that the chat GPT had taken over the world. I mean, it was incredible. My LinkedIn feed was just like you know, chat GPT, chat GPT, chat GPT. It's 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 died down a little bit now, but it's it's still still very much front and center. Look, I think the the AI revolution is real. Um, I think that the application of these different technologies to cold outreach, for instance, to uh, reaching potential customers, to to making processes more efficient is is real. It's still tough to say, you know, whether this is um, something that has now gotten so much incredible attention that it's been hyped up to the point where it's unrealistic to think that everything is going to be AI. Um, I mean, think about the metaverse. Right, a year ago, everybody was talking metaverse, and it was you know that was going to change the world. And and now you hear all companies basically laying off literally thousands of people that were working on the metaverse. Right, so so these things do tend to come and go. Um, I think for the purposes of 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 AI as a as a as a startup idea, absolutely huge opportunity. So one of the clients I work with is a UK based company. They provide an AI solution for warehousers, uh, like logistic solution where they they all have robots that will that will scan. Um, you know, racks and racks of, of uh, shelves worth of data, um, of boxes, collect that data, make it accessible uh, in a much easier way. That's definitely about efficiency and, and cost savings in some ways. So there's there's definitely there's opportunities there. Um, as to, you know, how long this is going to go and what this could become, unfortunately, my crystal ball isn't that clear. Um, I don't know, but I'm sure it will it will have some, you know, some impact on the on the, the overall business environment. So you're not on the complete kind of dystopian side of the argument where you think, you know, 
because I'm starting to see that, particularly in the last couple of months. I think as you know, as as you've correctly said, kind of got over the peak of the hype wave in terms of why wow, ChatGPT is here, changing your lives into like uh, shit that like this could actually have real long term consequences, and obviously the rollout of GPT four and people's eyes being open to how powerful these things can be, and the kind of not so encouraging interviews done by the likes of Sam Alban, where he's like, okay, we don't really know how these things work, and like we're not sure it's going, and you would be mistaken not to be a little bit scared and all of this stuff. Um, I think it's very interesting to see how this play out in the next kind of one to two years. Absolutely. Look, I, I'm not one of those guys who sits there and, and kind of uh, creates all sorts of theories about the, what the future is going to hold, to be honest. I'm much more of a hands-on, kind of get it done, get it done type of person. And, and I think where, where, I, where I see the, the, uh, the challenge with AI is, you know, kind of working it back to what I do, which is basically, you know, working on the sales side and helping people, you know, generate additional revenues and sell a market to, to enterprise customers. I think that you cannot discount the value of personal connection. And I know that might not be a particularly modern or, or hyped up point of view, but I still believe that at the end of the day, people buy from people. And, and that personal connection that you create um, is not something that you're going to be able to replace uh, one for one through robotics and, and AI. I genuinely don't believe that. Um, if I just think about when I go out and I speak at a conference, um, you know, I'll get on stage, I'll do my thing. And then inevitably I'll have literally 30 to 40 people come up to me afterwards, you know, saying, Hey, that was interesting. Can we talk, you know, all sorts of interesting, you know, engagements. And literally within the space of those seven minutes, I probably build stronger relationships with real people than, you know, seven weeks sending out cold emails to a bunch of people hoping that somebody responds, right? So it's difficult to imagine that that AI is going to be something that's going to replace the personal touch in selling. Um, I can imagine that it will make um, the the process of outreach more efficient. Um, but at the end of the day, it's going to still have to be about having a very clear focused offer message that targets a specific problem you know, creating a structured approach to reaching customers and, and tracking your performance to see how, you know, how you how effective you are. So th those aren't going to change just because there's some robotic uh, approach there that's that's making it easier. So this is really interesting, Zoltan, because I've heard, I, I think the same, by the way, I agree, but I'm going to play devil's advocate with, uh, with an opinion I've heard recently. So speaking to a founder here in India, so I'm currently based here, and he was talking about how much of this what we've just described is cultural and how much is biological? Because if you take, you know, the millennial generation and previous, a lot more geared towards communication, social skills, going out, talking, being around people, like spent their childhoods going out, playing in the park. That was a big mm -hmm. part of growing up. Whereas if you take the modern younger generations now, they spend a lot more time inside, they spend a lot more time on their phones. Their social circles are almost through games, through the Xbox, Playstations. On, on, you know, WhatsApp, Instagram, Twitch, whatever other platforms are, are very popular now, right? So how do we know in 20, 30 years that the same value for one-to-one -one direct human contact and communication might not change? So I think the question there is like, how much of what we're talking about is biological and how much is cultural? Well, the short answer is we don't know what's going to happen in 20 years. We can just just obviously create sort of theories. Look, I have a 17-year-old daughter, so I have somewhat of an insight into this generation. Um, and it's an interesting uh, uh, um, insight that she once gave me to try to understand what goes on in the minds of the 17-year-olds these days. She described it as two parallel worlds. There's a world in which you live, which is completely digital, and that's basically on the Instagram and and you know whatever the equivalents of that that people are using. And the other is the real world, like school and friends and so on. And and it's almost like the two don't intersect. It's like there's a very two two very parallel worlds that exist. And so I think that if anything, this generation is going to be um, capable of of existing in those both both of those worlds. I see that. Um, you know, the kids these days who don't have the ability to walk into a room and introduce themselves and, and make an impression are going to be at a, at a disadvantage because at the end of the day, again, it's still about people and it's still about, you know, relationships. And so um, I, I just find it hard to believe that that personal element is going to completely disappear. I really do. I, I think there's there's going to be an efficiency element. I mean, look, even if I think of my generation, you know, I'm 52, 
you know, if I think of, you know, I've already grew up, I got my first computer when I was 17, right? So already I was, you know, quite late compared to today where you know, kids have their computers when they're three, um, you know, about using a computer and, and then using word processing and doing all that stuff. So, so in comparison to, let's say my parents' generation, but, but uh, I would say that there's, there's definitely um, still a value to the personal touch. And, and I don't think people who, who are going to rely entirely on digital and digital communication, in the digital world is are, are going to uh, flourish. And, and interestingly, if there's anything of proof to that, it's this metaverse concept, which, of course, a year ago was Mark Zuckerberg's big, you know, revolutionary idea. It's hard to say, but I think it's generally been rejected because people don't want to live in a completely virtual world. Right. I mean, the whole concept of just living with, you know, you know glasses on and, and not having any personal connection with people just is a bit creepy. I think. I think, yeah, there is the you know, only, I, mean, I think I completely agree. Yeah. I'm on the same page. I think there is, I'm on the same page as well, because as you know, like we're, we're all sociable people. We love going out, meeting people, talking to people face to face. I think there is the argument, for example, with the smartphone. I understand like the proto smartphone kind of came out in the nineties and you know, the world wasn't ready for it and the technology wasn't ready for it. That might be as again, to play devil's advocate might be something we're seeing with the metaverse. It may be something that comes into play 10, 20 years down the line. But I think, kind of to echo your point is like technology has always been a tool for mankind like we've always used it to help better ourselves and as you know the famous quote to give us superpowers uh to enhance ourselves really um i would say that the only thing is now we're kind of reaching that inflation point where people are starting to think that it's, it's clear to us that ai has the power to kind of flip the switch uh and i think to kind of you know reiterate your point is whether we're ready to accept that and whether we will now which yeah. i doubt we will but maybe in the next 10 to 20 years, we might be in a position where we're like, oh, actually, here's some kind of Wally dystopian world where we're willing to let AI actually kind of usurp all areas of our lives. So so here's a bit of perspective. Um, you know, you guys live in an extremely high-tech world. You're talking to people like me and founders and so on, and and I do as well. Um, so I am of a generation where I'm, you know, a lot of my friends and, and, and colleagues, you know, are still in the corporate world. They're still sort of in that more traditional environment. And, you know, Chad GPT kind of hit the, hit my, um, my LinkedIn feed kind of early January. And I was chatting with some of my close friends, also the sort of similar aged executives in the world uh, about two weeks ago, they'd never even heard of it. Literally had never even heard of it. And these are senior executives in big companies. And, and what that made me realize is that, you know, what an interesting bubble you live in if you're in this, you know, the forward facing technology side. And you think that the entire world is talking about ChatGPT, but actually it's just a tiny portion of the world that actually knows it exists. Um, and a lot of people, and I'm not talking about people who live in small towns and, you know, farming. I'm talking about like, you know, you know, big city people living in, you know, big houses that living in, you know, waking a decent wage of big companies haven't heard of it. Right. I mean, I was sitting there at the table while we were having a beer, explaining what it was and showing them how we could you put in anything in, into the, the phone and it would write this poem about it. They were like, oh, my God, that's insane. Like, how long has this existed? So to that point, I think that, yes, this AI stuff is important, but I also think it's still impacting just a tiny sliver of people in the world. And it's going to be a long time before it, it, it trickles down to the, to the broader um, population. Zoltan is so true because when I worked in... Um... I worked in banking for a couple of years and I saw that exact phenomenon, like people just living life with blinders on, had no clue what was going on in the outside world. It was all work, work, work. How can I add value to my company? Not even can I, how can I add value to myself and grow my own skills? It never had that kind of outlook. It was always, how can I add value to my company, to my bosses? How can I help? And, you know, from night kind of day till your night, always thinking about the company and living in your own bubble of whatever it is, banking or law or whatever your practice area was and i think that is something unique in the tech ecosystem that it's not just your siphoned off in b2b SaaS and this kind of little niche that you're doing is you by showing you are an entrepreneur you're thinking bigger anyway and your mind is always on you know what's the next technology where can i go to next uh it just shows that kind of very entrepreneurial mindset that a lot of people don't share frankly especially if you're in a big corporation yeah. and it's such a tiny sliver right i mean it's literally you're talking about a few percentage points i mean i think it's probably less than a percent of the world that even knows what ChatGPT is. I really genuinely think so. I, I think it's it's about, you know, obviously the segment of the world is much, that, that is probably, you know, opinion leaders and, and the high tech and all that stuff, but it's still a small sliver. So um, so I think, you know, it's gonna be a long time before this trickles down into everyday people's lives. Um, having said that, you know, if you can capture the the power of AI um, and, and apply it to your business, I think it's a huge, huge benefit. Although speaking from experience right now, 
obviously in my own work, I'm, I'm looking at how can I introduce AI into my my uh, you know outreach and my work. And it's confusing, man. I mean, there's just so much stuff out there. And, you know, I mean, yeah, you can read the 75th GPA, you know, LinkedIn post about the five steps to using GPT, Chad GPT in your outreach, but it's still very difficult to apply, right? I mean, you still have to go through the process and learn it and all that stuff. So, you know, it's, there's a big gap between the theory and the practice. Ultimately, you got to change habits. I think that's the most the, the the strongest thing, right? People are averse to that. They if they if you have a workflow, you have a structure, you're more comfortable with that. And especially if it works, why the heck would you yeah. change? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, I mean, habits are hard to to to, to create. Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. So I wanted to ask on the sales side again. Whenever you have young founders come to you, what's the most common problem they have with establishing a proper sales pipeline? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the it starts with um, what their what problem they're solving. It goes a little bit back to our, 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 an early part of our discussion. It really is um, interesting to me how even companies that have been around for three, four years will sometimes have a very difficult time explaining articulate way, like what, what is it they actually do. And I'll give you a specific example. So, one of the early companies I worked with was in the area of social media analytics. That basically they they uh, they analyze literally millions and millions of messages and social media messages and emails and stuff. And then they create this kind of picture of what the true intent of a particular type of consumer is towards a product, right? So, they sell this product to pharmaceutical companies, to telecommunications companies with large groups of, of consumers. And I saw these guys, I think they were about two years old, got to chatting and I was like, so no, explain to me what, what you guys do. And, and, you know, it turned into this typical five minute monologue with all these buzzwords and all this stuff. And I'm like, no, no, listen, I'm a 12 year old. Explain to me what it is that you do. Well, they couldn't really do it. We started working together. And, and so we explained, you know, I've got this kind of five-step process uh, to create a, a one sentence value proposition. Um, you know, and, and we went through that process and it was really interesting. Um, you go through the process and, you know, it forces you to simplify a lot of things and it create this one sentence literally that, hopefully a 12 year old can understand. And once they got that right, um, it was interesting how it impacted the entire organization because suddenly, because they could articulate what, what they were actually doing, their product development became much more clear because they actually knew what they needed to do in order to solve for that value proposition. You know, all of a sudden the organization, the way we're communicating with the rest of the team, people are like, ah, oh, okay, so that's what I'm doing. All right, well, now I get it. So then I'm going to do that. And it was really interesting, uh, you know, the physical impact of this is once you go through this process and you clarify your message, um, you actually, people see the physical impact of it because all of a sudden they're like, their face relaxes, their shoulders sag. They're like, okay, finally, I understand what I understand what I'm actually selling. I always knew what I was selling, but I can never really explain it. So, so that's kind of the first thing that I always work on is like, get your value proposition so clear that in eight seconds you can explain what problem you solve for who and why you're better than the competition. Once you do that, then that opens up the question of, you know, how do you create a, a pipeline? And, and that starts with the ideal customer profile or your ICP, right? So you have to really clearly uh, articulate who is it that is most likely to be interested in what you're selling. And and I always emphasize most likely because, you know, the, the typical uh, startup uh, approach is, well, this is good for everything. You know, and I always say, look, if you're if you're everything to everybody, then you're nothing to nobody. Right. You've got to be not a solution for something. You have to be the perfect solution for that one thing. Right. And so really identifying that the type of customer is going to really look at you as the best possible solution for his particular problem. Um, and, you know, there's a process for doing that. Right. I mean, if you're selling business to business, you start with a company. What does the company look like? What are the empirical elements? You know, industry, size geographic location, right? Like you can go through all those pieces and then you say, okay, what are the things that are softer interests? Are you looking for companies that are open to innovation? Are you interested in companies that are, you know, like, like quality over quantity? I mean, there's all sorts of different factors. Once you've created that clear profile of the company, then you have to go into, okay, so who are the people that are going to make decisions, right? Who's got the budget and the authority to make the decision? And, and then again, you start going through that process. Like what are the titles that they're going to have? What are the industries they're in? What are the, the roles they have? And then once you've identified that, then that's where actually the work begins, which is basically how do you reach out to these people, go through the process of outreach and, and contacting and selling. But you have to get those first two things right, ideal customer profile and your value proposition before you even get started. What you said about really having the messaging to the internal stakeholders really reminds me of books I've read on branding. When you start a brand, it's like have the messaging of your brand completely clear so that everyone that joins immediately knows what they're coming into and what environment and what kind of company you're trying to create. So it's extremely similar to that. Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the interesting things is it's not like it happens like this, right? I mean, 
you can go through the process in a bubble. You can create some sort of theoretical approach, but then you have to take it out to the market. You've got to test it in your conversations with people. You've got to test it in your emails. You've got to test it in your your outreach, your messaging, your website, right? So there's a lot of stuff. And you know, inevitably, something's not going to be, you know, maybe the key benefit you have is not really the most important thing for your target customer, or maybe your competitive advantage isn't how you deliver the solution, but it's actually another benefit, right? There's different scenarios there. And, and, um, and you know, you have to go through that pain of, of iteration before you ultimately realize that you've got it right. And you'll know you've got it right because three things happen. First of all, your sales cycle shortens significantly, right? So people are just getting to yes, much quicker. Second, you'll get much fewer objections, right? So people aren't raising as many questions about why this is something that this should work for them. And the third is you just simply start getting a lot more inbound interest right? Because people are reacting to what it is because you're speaking to their, their, their problem. And, and once you have that, I mean, it's a beautiful thing, beautiful thing, right? That's when you start really, really scaling. And then it's not just about, you know, finding the right process. It's like just being much more efficient about implementing yeah. the process. I guess one thing that comes to, because when you say people are inbound to comments, because it's easily comprehensible straight off the bat, you're like, I know exactly what that is and I want it. But also when you're selling, it's like, I have clear messaging. So if you don't want it, I'm going to get a no a lot faster. So I don't have to dedicate those resources. Absolutely. And, and, you know, saying no is one of the toughest things, right? Especially when you're, you're selling, right? The concept of just saying, okay, so actually I've got a great solution, but this is not the problem I solve for. And just being able to say no. Typical situation I have is, you know, company I'll work with will say, yeah, but if we just, if we just focus on these people, then we're going to miss all these other people. I said, but that's fine because all these other people are, are probably not they don't need you. These people really need you. So focus your efforts on finding these type of people. But it does it does create this fear of missing out, right? So you kind of got to yeah. got to get over that. And and it, it's a, it's a process. I mean, look, selling's not easy. You know, it's a tough it's a tough process. You have to you have to understand that it's a you have to go through a lot of pain before you you know experience the pleasure, so to speak. It's a very psychological process. They even adapting your mind to rejection, self discipline. You know maintaining structure. I was speaking to a sales manager and he was saying exactly what you said. Well, on the same lines, he was talking about, he creates an ICP, really understands his customers. And then before he actually goes onto a demo call, before he tries to sell anything, he'll speak to the customer first to see if they really fit the ICP. So they might come into him inbound and say, hey, this is really interesting. We'd love to have a look at what you're doing. And then he kind of speaks to them first for 10, 15 minute call. And from that call, we'll discern whether or not they fit the ICP and if they don't, he'll actually turn around and say, hey guys, you know, I'm really happy to help you find the best product available on the market, but I don't think what we have is for you. And this yeah. is why. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then it's a great discipline. And a very powerful statement to say. And, you know, of course, it also sometimes gets people to say, oh, well, actually, maybe I do really need it. Right. So it's an interesting psychology. Once you say you don't need, you, know, you, you don't want, I don't, you want somebody, then all of a sudden they want you more. So that's kind yeah, of interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, it works the same way in investment. Just sorry to cut you off there because it's like yeah. you go to most founders and they're like, oh, yeah, take my business card. Let's talk. Let's talk. I'd, I'd love to come in and, and, and pitch to you. And you go to a particular founder who's, who's already funded and they say, you listen to what their business does. And you're, saying, and you're like, oh, when are they going to ask me? to have a meeting and then they're like, oh, we're not actually looking for funding. Uh, so it's good. It's, it's nice to meet you. And then you're like, I need to invest in that company. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is. You know, one of the things that, that resonated, resonated with me that you said, um, you know, that, that sales is really tough. And, you know, so one of the, one of the things that I experience regularly is, you know, the people I, the, the founders that I work with mostly are tech founders, right? So they're people who are not, you know, sales and marketing is not their comfort zone. They're product people, they're, they're tech people. And, and, you know, what I found oftentimes is that they're really scared of selling and not just because of the rejection, just because they don't understand the process. Right. I mean, a lot of, you know, um, product folks are really structured in the way that they develop things. And and so that's when I realized that in order for to get these type of founders to accept uh that sales is possible is to create a very clear blueprint, like a step-by-step process that they can follow. And so I found that to be extremely powerful in the way that I, I approach with the launch code is that I give these founders like a, you know, a paint by numbers type of approach of like, how do you actually create the fundamentals of sales and marketing? And it's amazing the impact that it has because a very recent story, just I think last week, um, I was work- I'm working with a tech founder who runs a um, uh, development company. And, um, you know, he's doing deals in the five, 6,000 euro range in terms of his, his average customer value or contract value, short-term kind of things. And, you know, we just got down to the whole process. Okay. So what's your value proposition? Why are you different than the other 75 different development companies out there? You know, um, how, how, what is it that you actually, people can buy? Like, you know, what are the three options they can buy? You know, option A, option B, option C, um, you know, 
how are you going to present this message? So you don't talk about yourself because frankly, nobody cares about who you are. They care about what problem you solve, right? Like we just started taking these things off and he calls me, um, I don't know, we had one of our sessions and he says, you know, I just sold this package um, that I've been selling for 5,000 euros for 10,000 euros. And I said, well, what did you change about? I said, literally nothing. So you're saying you bought, you sold the exact same thing you've been selling for 5,000 for 10,000. Is it different type of company? No, exact same type of customer. What did you do differently? He said, I just presented my offer in a much more compelling way. And it was just such an interesting insight to say, it's like, it's not rocket science, but it's just, if you get those fundamentals right, you can literally charge twice as much for the exact same thing. Yeah. Simply because yeah. your customers will believe that what you offer is relevant to them. It's the beauty and nuance of hu human communication. You know, uh, maintaining particular types of frame and creating creating certain communicative environments. It's like you see, you see it even in going to a new job, applying for a new job, any, anywhere we're communicating with another person, all based on how you say it and how you approach the conversation changes yeah. the, whole, the whole frame of it. Yeah. And yeah. So, so I, just, I, I imagine you've seen before as well, sorry to cut you off, that people yeah. just start pouring money into the sales team as well at that point. And they're like, oh no, we've got yeah. to go out and hire 10, 20, 30 salespeople. <laughs> it's like, well, you could have just done this in one evening if you tweaked your positioning <laughs> slightly and your returns would have been like yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, I mean, you know, once you get that right, that's when you can start scaling, which of course is a is an important step. But 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 you know, I think I think one of the the biggest mindset shifts for me that I notice in people is just the concept of like at you know, the idea here is not to talk about yourself, it's about talking about your customer and understanding the problem they have and how you solve it. That's such a mind shift shift difference. So many times you go on a website and it's just like me, 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 me. This is what I do, this is why I'm good, this is why our product is good, this is how many awards we've gotten all great, but like, what is it that I should actually, like, what, have you, what are you going to do for me, right? That's what a customer wants to know. And so when they go to a website, that's got to be the message. Like, what's the problem you solve? Good example of this, I worked with a company out of Poland that uh, sells a, um, a tech tool to audit factory um, manufacturing processes and, and automotive companies. And again, very typical, you know, we got to his website, me, 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 this is what we do. And I'm like, look, why are factory managers going to be interested in what you're offering? Well, actually, our studies show that we can reduce the time of these factory audits by 70%. So I'm saying you're going to save these people 70% of their time. Like, why isn't that at the top of your website? And that's what we did. We said, save 70% of your time. And, you know, you know, I don't know what the exact language was, but something like, you know, save 70% of your time and sleep well that your factory audits are doing well. And he immediately closed a couple of new deals in Germany um, for companies he never had in contact with by just simply changing the, the messaging and making it about his customer and not about himself. That's very insightful. So insightful. I imagine you see that loads with tech guys as well, because we've seen this definitely. It's like once you're a tech person, you've coded something from scratch. Essentially, it's your baby and you're kind of married to it. And yeah. you want to kind of project it out in the world, kind of tying in the points we just made here about not thinking about what the customer actually wants and kind of projecting what you would like uh, and then not getting the messaging right and, you know, centering it more about yourself. Um, so that's, yeah. that's a great lesson. I, I believe that people should learn that for themselves. Um, and I would hope that, you know, when they speak to you as well, it's not just you're kind of like a partner with them and you kind of hold their had their hand through it, but they eventually get to a point where it's like, I'm comfortable that I can now go out and sell and continue to scale by myself as a founder. Absolutely. And, and that's, look, I, I teach these guys how to fish. I don't fish for them. And, and that's, that's, that is a fundamental part of what I offer, right? I give them the tools they need to, to do it themselves because, you know, I can't scale myself. Unfortunately, the two things I haven't been able to solve for is they're only 24 hours in the day and there's only one of me. So, you know, I've got to, I've got to figure out a different way to, uh, to, to provide value. And, and, and that's why I launched my online courses as well. So if somebody wants to access the content, they can do it, you know, on demand version, or if they want to do the whole program with me, that's a possibility. If there's a mix option there as well, if they want to buy the program, they get five hours of mentoring with me. So there's different options they can use, but, but it is about teaching the founders to become comfortable with selling. And, and ultimately, of course, at some stage reaching, reaching the, the point where they can maybe hire a professional sales person and then, you know, professional sales team in house to, to build their business. No, absolutely. As Zoltan, I want to go back as well to something you said at the start. You kind of, you started your own company um, and then you exited. You said you maybe had multiple yeah. exits. Can you maybe shed yeah. light on that? Because, you know, we don't get a lot of, you know, more experienced entrepreneurs that have had exits in the past and yourself particularly having yeah. gone through the dot-com bubble and kind of what the environment was like that 20 years ago. Maybe just shed light yeah. on your experiences there. Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, this was 23 years ago, 1999. Um, I was at the heart of the entire internet explosion. So I was working in Los Angeles. I was a VP of sales for CBS television in Los Angeles, surrounded by a bunch of 20 somethings. Um, I was 28 at the time, I think. 
Um, and starting by 20 somethings who were just leaving these companies to start up, you know, the first, first dot com companies and, you know, companies like Google and Yahoo and eBay were a couple of years old, right? So this is like really, really the golden age or the, or the stone age of the internet, depending on your perspective. And so I, I left my job. I partnered up with my brother actually, and we, we raised a million and a half dollars of angel investment in $50,000 increments. Um, on the back of this concept of creating the Yahoo for Central Eastern Europe. So I've, I've got a background, a Hungarian background. Uh, I live partly in Budapest and, and partly in London. And so I moved from Los Angeles to Budapest and we started this business. And, you know, it was like, uh, you know, it was just a wild ride. I mean, it was it was about 24 month experience. Uh, it felt like 24 years. Um, you know, you go into this experience thinking that, well, you got the plan, you got the business plan, you got the investors, oh, perfect, you know, everything's going to go. And then like reality hits, right? And then you're like, oh, man, I got to get the customers. I got to convince my investors. I got to deal with this. You know, the head of content just quit. I got to replace them. It's just like the day-to-day grind of just creating a business is insane, right? And so and so we went through that whole process and we actually were able to catch the wave and, and exited pretty well from that uh, to some strategic investors. And and so what I what I learned from that experience is really that, you know, this concept of entrepreneurship is really a, a combination of two things. It there, you know, th- this, you know, get it done and execution is absolutely important and critical. And, and you know, some people say it's 95% execution, 5% planning. I actually think you actually have to do some planning as well, right? So just just going in there and, and you know, like a bull in a china shop to, to build something is not necessarily the most effective way to do it. And so I really think that you have to have a certain amount of structure and planning to the process to give you those guidelines and then the execution becomes uh, becomes uh, extremely important because you're you're putting your effort and your resources into the right things rather than just kind of going randomly so so that was my kind of first entrepreneurial experience i actually went back after that after the exit and back to the corporate world and eventually became ceo for a large uh, broadcasting group in central europe and then eventually moved to nbc to become senior vice president of the global sales there um but during that period i had a two two years shot where i left again the corporate world and I, I put some money into some early stage companies and so one of the exits that we had was a company called brainiant actually a uk-based company in the ad tech space um I worked with a the founder there a very talented guy um named emmy gall and uh and uh Worked with them at the board level to to build the company, and eventually exited to a to a company called Teeds, which is a, a French uh, ad tech company. And so, you know, there again, it was a, a really interesting ride, seeing you know the the importance of constant iteration, of constantly you know adjusting your messaging to meet the needs of the customer, and and building some strategic partnerships, which ultimately led to the exit. And so, one of the one of the reasons we got the exit was through a strategic partnership with ITV in the UK, um, which which was very successful. So, um, so yeah, so I've, I've kind of had those and you know, I'm currently now chairman of a company called Antavo. Antavo is a, a loyalty uh, a tech platform. They work with, you know, multinational companies, helping them build loyalty programs, providing the technology behind it and, you know, have uh, customers like KFC in the UK and BMW and some major fashion brands. And, you know, I've worked with those guys uh, for many years, was an early investor and now the chairman. And I also see there the importance of persistence, right? Just of, of sticking with it and of pushing through the difficult times. So a lot of, lot of interesting experiences on the entrepreneurial side to match my kind of corporate background. So Zoltan, do you then invest in the companies or mentor? Or how do you structure your relationships with uh, upcoming entrepreneurs apart from the sales program you do, of course? Yeah. So, so, so you know, I, the, the, the primary focus of my professional efforts are as an advisor. So I work with um, early stage founders, providing them this, this kind of launch code program, which I, which I offer through a personal mentoring program, um, uh, an on-demand course, and a combination of the two. Um, that's the the brunt of my um, of my work, and and I get a professional fee for that, so I don't take any equity or anything like that. That's that's the service I provide. Um, separately from that, um, the company, like for instance, Santavo, where I'm the chairman, I'm actually an early investor in the company as well. So I've I've, I've, I've put some money in there, um, and you know it's gotten it's it's raised. We raised about a ten million euro around uh, six months six months ago. So there's some institutional investors that came in there. So I've I've followed that along. So you know I'd say that yeah, it's ninety percent professional service, and then ten percent more you know investment in in to companies um, that yeah. where, where I have kind of you know some sort of operational involvement. And how do you find those companies in terms of angel investments? Just through people mentioning to you like, hey, Zoltan, I think this would be interesting. Why don't you have a look? And then it's like, hey, this is actually quite cool. Have you dropped some money in this? 
Not- well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm not having been very active in the last few years as an angel investor. So some of these investments I made sort of like five, six years ago, and they've come to fruition now. Um, right now, I'm not really looking at, at angel investment opportunities, but I would say that, um, you know, there's always an openness, right? You never know. Um, you know, I, I try to try to create a wall between my professional services and my investment profile, frankly, because it can be quite confusing. Like if you're an investor, then how much, what are you doing? Because you're you know, protecting your money and what is it that you're offering as a professional service. So I try to kind of keep those uh, separate from each other. But, um, but yeah, if, if, you know, if, if there are, if there are B2B tech founders out there who kind of are struggling with sales and they need support to, to build this, this recurring revenue stream, then, then I'd love to talk to them. What I love Zoltan is the kind of point you somewhat implied, which is something that we've heard from entrepreneurs in the past as well, which is like, you go into entrepreneurship and founding a company thinking, oh, I'm going to be so free now. I finally get to pursue what I want. Um, but it almost <laughs> immediately turns into sh- <laughs> shackles, right? And you immediately it's like, oh, we've got all these calls from investors, from customers, from my employees. Like, shit. And then, you know, you could even yeah. burn out even faster than you would do in the corporate world. So I really appreciate yeah. actually the, the candidness of that statement. Yeah, I'll tell you, one of the greatest fallacies in, in business is, yeah, I'm going to create my own company because I want to be my own boss. That, that I think, is literally, whoever came up with that is, is, was high on something. I mean, look, if you commit to building a company, absolutely do it, but only do it if you are absolutely, positively passionate about the problem that you want to solve. You are prepared to put yourself through unbelievable amounts of stress and pressure and 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 just have the internal fortitude to push through um if you don't or if you're not that type of character uh save yourself the trouble because it's just so much more work than you ever thought and it will take you twice to three times longer than you think and and that's like a standard uh, conclusion i've come to like if you think it's a three-year project it's going to take you six to nine years a hundred percent um and and i think um and i don't say that to scare people off i just i just think it's really important that you be clear on, on, on what you're getting yourself into. Um, and, and that's why I, I have such respect for entrepreneurs who, who start something, who build it, you know, who are able to become successful, whether it's financially or in terms of their impact, because, uh, because it is such a, such a massive undertaking. And I, th- I think it's something we're seeing. Uh, you make excellent points and it's like, you look at the bull run for basically the last kind of, you know, 10 years before the pandemic and everyone's kind of getting on this hype train, this building and building and, you know, the the allure of being an entrepreneur has never been higher. Um, and everyone's kind of finding all these little niches and sub-niches of businesses they can build. And now I think there's this huge reset obviously happening right now, particularly in the Western world, where people are actually evaluating, okay, you know, what, what big problems do I want to solve? Where do I want to spend my time in the next 10, 20 years of my life? I think that's kind of coinciding with, you know, people, you know, of your daughter's generation, for example, for my little sister's generation who actually see, you know, bigger problems, what a big one would be climate, um, that they're actually dedicated to kind of solving. And it's like, oh, I want to dedicate my life for this. And a lot of deep tech founders that I meet now, you look at their kind of CVs and it's like, wow, you've been working on something like this for the last 10 years. And that's crazy. And you did your PhD 10 years ago and you've been working on this problem this whole time. And you only just secured like 500K in grant funding and you've been working on it for 10 years. And then you realize the yeah. motivation isn't, I want to be an entrepreneur. The motivation yeah. is, you know, deep down within you. And it's like, I love the problem that I'm solving. And I, you know, I have a yeah. passion for it. Yeah. And by the way, I think one one thing that is really um, creating this hype and this this misconception about entrepreneurship is a lot of the stuff um, you see on Instagram, uh, mostly of these twenty-something guys with orange Lamborghinis and the rent-a-model girlfriend, you know, with a flashy watch. Telling you, <laughs> I mean, it's it's it, it actually drives me crazy. I mean, I think those are so misleading, and there's you know, it's this hustle culture crap about, you know, you know, work six weeks, you know, two hours a day for six weeks, and you'll be driving a Lamborghini. Um, and they're selling some system to do that. And, and I just think it's so misleading, because first of all, it makes it seem like it's easy. Second of all, a lot of what's behind this is don't you don't have to educate yourself, you don't have to work hard, you don't have to train yourself. It's just it's just, you know, you have to find the hack that's going to make you a millionaire. And, and I just I think it's so misleading. And it's so fundamentally wrong. And unfortunately, um, it also creates this ridiculous expectation um, for a lot of founders that they're going to be driving Lamborghinis in, in a year, um, which all power to them if they want to drive a Lamborghini, but if that's what they want to spend their money on. But but just presenting that as the desired outcome for me is just so, so wrong. It's just so out of whack with, with I, what I, the reality is. 
downright contemptuous towards the public and the younger generation, right? And it is, and it is, and that's what they're reading. That's what it's saying. And yeah, I get these things they, all they, the they feed off that as well. They make money off people's desire to do that. Yeah, and it's exactly. So, so like, uh, it plays on this trend of instant gratification. Like, hey, you don't have to work for yeah. anything anymore. Just yeah, right exactly. Now. Yeah. And, it's, and it's, there's this really strong, um, I read from your bias, you guys are both Imperial College graduates. I went to Cornell. So I think we're all kind of in that space where we spent some time with our education and, you know, and, and put some time into it. You know, I really have a problem with all this messaging about, you know, college is useless and education is crap. And, you know, I think, again, it's completely wrong. You know, the ability to think critically, the ability to surround yourself with like-minded people who have ambition um, who want to make something of themselves, I think far outweighs an extra couple of years of sitting there and, 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 you know, doing your hacks and your, uh, and your, um, you know, quick wins. You know, I think, you know, I, I personally think that, you know, as whether you're not, I mean, obviously if you're a doctor or lawyer, you kind of have to go to college, but if you're not, entrepreneur, I think you have a huge benefit if you put the time in because you, you, you learn to solve problems, which is basically what entrepreneurship is all about. You learn to, to work with others. Um, you're, you know, you surround yourself with people who can be, you know, inspiring for you. Um, you know, uh, yeah. and, and give you that. I mean, you guys are college classmates, I guess, as well, right? So you guys have spent uh, a lot of time together. And I think it's such a, such a value, you know, such a yeah. value for, for, Absol- for anybody. Absolutely. And, and it's like, if you study something that's technical, you surround yourself with people that become sector experts. You might not necessarily become one if that's not what you want to do. But like a lot of your friends that you study with might go on to do PhDs and become the people yeah. that know. Because most innovation comes from the universities it comes from the university yeah. about 10 15 years before and then it starts slowly seeping into the commercial world yeah yeah so, that's, yeah, a, yeah. that's a whole other podcast we could do about how the uk system is completely messed up and sells every kind of spin out founder short i mean it's actually embarrassing like we don't have enough time now but the amount of equity they take off ideas you know spun out of universities is uh-huh. actually abhorrent um and the whole you know uk startup ecosystem is really in the in the kind of mud at the moment, frankly. Um, but yeah, I'd love, we could maybe talk about that on the second episode, but I want to segue as well into what you were kind of saying about kind of a very clear kind of what you put in is what you get out. There's no shortcuts and hacks to life. And I feel that very much that way about fitness as well. And I kind of saw that you just did your Spartan race, your second one. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. your seventh one. Se- seventh, seventh one. Yeah. Seventh and, uh, one. Yeah. Sorry, I said second because your know, seven is you know, not, not even believable, <laughs> frankly. But um, what, what made you do it? Was this kind of like a challenge you're setting yourself or is it, you know, a lifelong passion you've had and you're like, finally, now's the time I can get it done or? So the, the story is that it was the Christmas of 2017 and I looked in the mirror and I just said, God, I got to get into shape. And, and basically it was one of those, those, uh, fortuitous things where I was, you know, two seconds later I was flipping through Facebook and there was a Spartan race ad and I was like, okay, that's it. I'm going to do it. So I, I literally uh, clicked on it. I, it was April of 2018. And then I said, I'm going to train for it. So I found a trainer, just an insane do- guy who, who, who prepares people, uh, to, to take part in these races. Um, you know, not somebody I'd like to hang out with, but he brought out the most of me. Um, and I got into shape. <laughs> really, I mean, he was he was like a drill sergeant type of character. Um, I know, but I know, he, I know the type. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, so he brought the best out of me, and I did it, and I was extremely proud of myself. And then, subsequent to that, um, I started doing them, and, I, and unfortunately, I took a break because of COVID, because you know they they canceled a bunch of races in 2020. I was going to do the trifecta, which is the, you know, there's the seven kilometer, fourteen kilometer, twenty five kilometer. I was going to do all three. I've just done two of those. Uh, I didn't do the top one. And so, so yeah, you know, it's something for me that is about giving yourself, um, you know, stretching your comfort zone. You know, I mean, you know, we live, you know, we all work in kind of white collar environments. You sit in front of a computer all day and, you know, people have become basically pretty lazy, you know, I mean, they're pretty, they're pretty mushy and soft and lazy. And I think, you know, putting yourself in uncomfortable situations actually enables you to take on a lot of other stuff that have nothing to do with your fitness, right? If you just kind of push through, thing. I mean, literally in this race, the last obstacle, I had this insane leg cramp, like just out of the blue, I could barely stand. And I'm just sitting there and I'm thinking, man, if I don't do this obstacle, I'm gonna have to do another 30 burpees. So I literally mustered every ounce of energy I had and did the last obstacle. It was like one of these ring, ring things. And I did it. And, you know, you feel good, you know, feel good about yourself. You know, it's funny. I had the opportunity to interview the guy who founded Spartan, Joe DeSeno. I have, I have a podcast as well. Um, and, and, you know, the way he explained it to me, he said, you know, um, what we do is we give people the opportunity to feel like an army ranger for a day, you know, or like a, like an Olympic athlete for a day. You know, they, they've got the whole show, right? You go through the finish line, they put a big heavy medal around your neck. 
um, you know, they give you that that feeling, and and that's what it is. It's it's, it's an extremely um, inspiring, powerful thing, and uh, you know, keeps you in shape. So there's a benefit, you know, from a health standpoint. But it's also something that you know, kind of feel like you you did something that was outside of your comfort zone. So I encourage That's- everybody. To, uh, to try it. It's fine. Excellent messaging as well. What you just said there. I loved, I love that he's like one liner about what it's all about. That really encapsulates it. Instead of saying, oh, you're going to do an obstacle course, you're going to do that. It's like, we'll make you feel like an army ranger for a day. That's absolutely Absolutely. fantastic. So Alton, I don't know how much more time you have, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, Do you have have five more minutes or you need to jump? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Happy to, happy to chat. Alton, I just want to know with the Spartan races, what does it involve? So a Spartan race um, is basically, it's an obstacle course race. They are at different levels. Um, and there there's kind of seven kilometer, 50, I'm going to use round number, seven kilometer, 15 kilometer, 25 kilometer races. And each of them has a set number of obstacles. The obstacles are a combination of skill. So you got to like climb a wall or you got to do, you know, these um, these rings where you got to go from one to the next. There's heavy, like you got to brick, you know, you got to pull like a 50 kilo, a kilo uh, um weight up a pole you gotta you know you gotta pick up this huge cement ball and carry it so this kind of like strength stuff um and then there's kind of muddy stuff like you got to go through barbed wire and, and mud and you know kind of gets you got to go into water sometimes you to go underwater to kind of something so they create this set of obstacles over the course of the, the the race and um and if you don't do the obstacle you have to do 30 burpees and i don't know what a burpee is it's basically when you jump down you do a push up and you jump back up so you have to do 30 of the um, and uh, yeah, and they're pretty brutal. I mean, 30 is doable, but like when you're doing your third times yeah. 30, then it gets to be pretty tiring. And of course, what they do is they usually put these races on very high elevation. So like the first three kilometers of the race I just did was straight up, like it was literally a 45 degree angle up a, up a mountain. Um, so you, they tire you out at the beginning, then they give you a bunch of stuff to do. And then at the last kilometer, they just put, you know, obstacle after obstacle, after obstacle, after obstacle, like right one, right after the next. And so what you end up doing is... Unfortunately, if you don't do the obstacle, you do the burpees, but you just they just like really pound you, right? So because you have to do the burpees, then you go to the, immediately the next obstacle. If you don't do it, then you got to do burpees. I usually have about three, four mistakes over the course of one race, so I have to do about you know ninety to one hundred and twenty burpees, and uh, and um, and so basically it's uh, yeah, it's it's a test of 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 your physical fitness, but also of your will because you know these obstacles are all doable, like they're not impossible, but they're doable. And, and you just have to sometimes really reach deep. I mean, it's, it's literally, it's like one of these, um, almost animalistic type of, of things where you're like sitting there, it's like, I got to do it. Like I had to do the rope climb. I was so tired. I'm like, man, I mean, I've done this gym so many times. I'm like, and you know, and, they, and it's all muddy, right? So they make it really muddy. So all the ropes are really muddy and stuff. And you're like jumping and you're slipping down. And I'm just like sitting there like, I am not leaving here until I do this obstacle. And I literally just dug deep and I did it. So, so that, again, there's a kind of an interesting psychology to it. And, um, and, you know, and the whole thing, Joe started this whole thing on the back of, of him, you know, he liked these endurance races, but he just didn't have, you know, he didn't have enough of a challenge. So he wanted to create something that, you know, kind of created, created, given this challenge and he built this entire business. They have something like four or 500 races a year globally now. So it's a big, it's a really big business. That's fantastic. It's a, it's a massive thing. You should try it out. I say, I know you're, uh, you're out of shape at the moment. You need to get back into it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, basically, which if to get into shape, you do CrossFit, like that's it's that type of thing, and you have to do running. Like those are the two things yeah. you have to do in order to get in shape. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, constant, constant sort of muscular endurance activity. Yeah. cardio. Yeah. I, I love the point you kind of started out with, which is you're you're kind of getting into it and you're seeing the dual side of benefits of fitness. Like I've been a fitness fanatic my whole life, and yeah. I think a lot of people that aren't into fitness always look at it and say, kind of, it's a zero sum game. Like you're kind of taken away from the other aspects of your life. If you're spending so much time in the gym, Um, on the track, you know, on the bars, whatever kind of workouts you may be doing. And I completely disagree with them. I'm like, you don't know what this has done for, you know, my mental state just as at a baseline, you know, it's very hard when you're going, you know, six weeks, six uh, days a week training, uh, the level of endorphins you're experiencing, you kind of the level of yeah. productivity that you have throughout the day if you go in the morning and how that carries through into yeah. everything else you're doing. Um, and that's why I kind of, I, you know, I don't want to push it on people, but I really suggest to them just at least try to work out two times a week, try and just elevate your heart rate. Cause as you say, we spend so much time sitting in front of our laptops and not doing enough and you will see 
see the knock-on effects. Okay, the first two weeks are going to be painful as hell. We all know this. You're going to get muscular pains. You're going to feel like you want to tap out. But you're going to see this kind of like J, J curve where it will, you'll start to reap the benefits in months and down the line. And it's it's really important yeah. that you do so, especially when you you know don't have as many kind of commitments and you get too old and it starts to hurt a bit more and all of this, right? Um, just trying to get started young and kind of build those habits. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I start my day every day with a one hour workout. So I, you know, speaking to the choir, um, in that sense. And I think it's such a huge, huge impact, but look, it's like anything. If you, if you want to do it, you have to make time for it. You know, I mean, it's, you know, there's no, there's no magic fix. Unfortunately, you will not collect an orange Lamborghini for not, you know, not working out. It's just, it's just, you have to put in the time. I mean, it's just, it's just. I'm starting to think no you wanted a Lamborghini. You put it up a number of times. And <laughs> I do not. Like, no, no. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I have a very conservative sedan, you know, Volkswagen uh, uh, sedan. So I'm, I'm not the, no, for me, that's just, that's just the, the typical thing you always see in these, yeah, in these it's ads, the classic, right? Because it's. Um, yeah, that's, or maybe, maybe it's lime green. I don't know if it's orange or lime green, but one of those two. <laughs> maybe both these days. You see, you see maybe, hideous, uh, yeah. hideous deliveries out there. Uh, but Zoltan, yeah. it's been a fantastic episode. Absolute pleasure meeting you and speaking to you. Uh, I really hope we can do this again as well. Uh, so do let us know if you're free in the coming months. Absolutely. And, and if it's okay, I just want to make a, a, an opportunity or an offer to, to everybody's listening. Um, um, first of all, I love the conversation. Thank you very much. I do appreciate it. Um, and anybody out there who's listening, kind of business to business tech founder who's struggling with sales, who wants to build kind of this predictable revenue stream. Um, you know, as I mentioned, the, one of the first things I do is I, I start out with this five-step process that I, I share with the founders to create this this value proposition. And it's the lowest hanging fruit, right? It's basically what you can do. And so what I want to do is I want to share this process with listeners. So if they go to zoltanvardi.com slash podcast, zoltanvardi.com slash podcast, then you can access this free value proposition video guide I created. They can watch the video, they can do the exercise, and they can do it themselves. And hopefully it adds value to them. And if they find that it's something that they want to talk to me about, I can be reached uh, either through directly through the guide or or just on LinkedIn. So just wanted to make that offer. No, absolutely. Awesome. I will put it in the uh, show notes as well. And uh, kind of Okay. Fantastic. fantastic. All right, guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Zoltan. Take care. Have a great week. All the best.